This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, as the Venezuelan government applies more pressure on street protesters, we'll hear from one of the leading opposition voices and revelations about corruption inside the national police in El Salvador. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. President Jose Pepe Mujica of Uruguay made a round of meetings through Washington, D.C. this week, including with U.S. President Barack Obama. During that meeting, Mujica discussed Uruguay's tobacco laws, laws that include some of the toughest tobacco regulation in the world. Besides meeting with Obama and U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, Mujica also held a question-and-answer session with students and members of Washington's policy community at American University. At that session, Mujica addressed questions about prison conditions, especially in juvenile facilities. Indeed, we have problems. We really had overcrowding in prisons, and that was very heavy. And many years without investing monies in the whole prison system. Uruguay's human rights ombudsman and international groups have criticized prison conditions as one area where Uruguay could improve its human rights record. Washington law and lobbying firm Patton Boggs reversed its position on the long-running and controversial case involving oil firm Chevron and indigenous communities in Ecuador. Three years ago, Ecuadorian courts ruled Chevron must pay the indigenous communities $9.5 billion for decades of environmental damage. However, a U.S. court ruled earlier this year that the legal judgment in Ecuador was obtained fraudulently. Patton Boggs agreed to pay Chevron $15 million and to turn over legal documents as part of a settlement of the fraud charges. Paul Pazimino of Amazon Watch, a group that has advocated on behalf of the indigenous communities, reacted to the settlement. And they knew that Chevron's position was to fight anything and everything as hard and as long as they possibly could. They're crossing some ethical lines, not just by saying, okay, we're going to settle this case, but to turn around and go after their clients and sort of join the other side. Groups in Ecuador, Argentina, the U.S., and in other nations will be staging a day of action in protest against Chevron next week. Protests against the World Cup are springing up in Sao Paulo. The demonstrations are becoming violent, with protesters burning tires and blocking roads. The police have responded with tear gas and stun grenades. The Brazilian government plans to monitor the protests as a security measure during the cup. Along with hosting the tournament, Brazil also has a presidential election this year. Many groups are using the dual events as an avenue to put more pressure on the government. Protesters near the new stadium in Sao Paulo demand housing for the workers, and others have complained about favelas, government has torn down or occupied in preparation for the tournament. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. Last week, as this program was going online, 
word came to us of the detention of Rodrigo Diamante in Venezuela. Venezuela's Interior Ministry police, some call them the secret police, the Sabine, took Diamante into custody. Venezuelan authorities charged Diamante with obstruction of public roads and possession of explosive devices. These are similar to the charges facing jailed opposition leader Leopoldo Lopez of the Voluntad Popular Party. Diamante is the leader of El Mundo Sin Mordaza, a world without censorship, a nonprofit group focused on free speech rights in Venezuela. Diamante was also the leader of anti-government student groups when he was in college, and he's credited with creating the SOS Venezuela campaign. International groups condemned Diamante's arrest. At the same time, the government was cracking down harder on street protests and encampments, arresting hundreds more in the protests that have stretched on since February. Diamante's arrest casts new light on some of the opinions he expressed on this program last month. Here are parts of our conversation with Rodrigo Diamante that we did not use in our earlier program, recorded using Skype between our studio in Washington, D.C. and Caracas. For example, for NGOs like me, having support from international organization is it can give us at least uh, three years of prison. Yes. So, Rodrigo, that raises the entire question of how do you support your NGO? Who is giving money to support it? Yeah, we have. Uh, we used to have like in the past. We started five years ago. With we start with a protest in 30 countries around the world in front of the embassies of Venezuela, asking to not to continue closing the media. And since that, at the beginning, we had like uh, support from from important donors and companies here. But then the government started to attack them uh, because of that. So. We lost a lot, a lot of support, and so right now we have like a few donors, more uh, particular people that believe in our fight. We also make events where we can collect some money. We we sell our T-shirts and and, and stickers, and and basically this NGO is, is the fuel of this NGO is the volunteers. We have right now, Rick, at least activists in two hundred cities around the world. Um, in the last month, we made a protest uh, in more than 150 cities um, about uh, the situation of Venezuela, where people start uh, writing uh, the word SOS Venezuela. Was, uh, 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 let me explain you better if you can imagine this. It's like people were, uh, we, we invite everybody to go on a square and write uh, everybody in the same in, the, in that square, the word SOS, write it with, with the human body, you know what I mean? It's like a, it's like a flash mob. So uh, this idea uh, gave us the opportunity to, to, to receive international attention because all local news went to these uh, squares to make interviews and, and, and the activists uh, couldn't... Uh, uh, they, they used that opportunity to tell them that we, in the last uh, 15 days, 50 days, uh, the government have detained at least 2,000 students. Um, that this, this number is incredible. During Chavez, this never happened in the past. Uh, so this new the regime is like is going to an, another level of repression. We have at least 200 students that confirmed to be tortured. 
uh, some of them, the government put, uh, well, the government, no, the militars that put them in prison, um, they started to put them electricity. Some of them, they were raped with guns. Some of them um, were, uh, they put uh, gas over them and, and, and threat them to, to, that they were going to get burned. So this is, o sea, this, this, what is happening here against the students, against the, the opposition, it never uh, happened in the past. And that's why we are worried right now, Rick, um, because the government doesn't want to make a step back. And they're, they're following the, the same path that Cuba did 50 years ago, o sea, the nature of this government, Rick, is a dictatorship. O sea, they really do not respect democracy. They do not never respect the position. They're maybe just trying to win time to overcome the crisis. Because now Venezuela is also living in scarcity. It's incredible. You can't find even milk. You can find a lot of products. It's very difficult to find it on, on the supermarket. You, uh, you, have, you have talked about and characterized the government in particular ways. Can you also, for us, please characterize the the protests? Some people have called the protests in Venezuela an example of class warfare, because as you said, there are students out in the streets protesting. There are many people from the middle class out in, in the streets protesting, but the government gets a lot of support from the lower classes and the poor in Venezuela. Well, actually, arriving to university in Venezuela is something that middle class have more probabilities to arrive to that, and that's true. So maybe you have a, a little bit more people from middle class than the lower class, but there are also free a lot of uh, public universities in the country, at least um, 15 of them, uh, where the, the, the student movement uh, organized these protests. Even people from the government and the opposition, the, the both groups support the students. Because people understand that you can smell that, that you can buy these students. And 90% of these protests have been all the time uh, pacific and democratic. But, of course, right now, there are some groups that have been acting more violently, for example, trying to attack the, 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 the police officers, and we are against that. We are specialists on non-violence strategies. If I so, could, I'd like to ask quickly about two of the leaders of the protest movement. Um, first, Maria Corina um, Machado had her powers in the National Assembly stripped from her. What are your thoughts about that action that the government took? Well, it's incredible that uh, she went to OAS. So, in the uh, OAS, um, the Organization they, of American States. Yes, they didn't want to talk about the situation of Venezuela. So, Panama, the government of Panama, they give uh, the seat of Panama to Maria Corina Machado. Uh, one Congress, um, so, so she went to to Washington to talk about Venezuela in the seat of Panama. And the government said that because she was talking in the seat of another country, she was a, a, um, a, a member of the staff of that, con of that government. 
And because he, she, she's uh, supposedly a, staff, a member of the staff of Panama, she can't be anymore a, a, a Congress in the Congress of Venezuela. So that's first. It, it's o sea, of course only the government of Panama. They only give her the opportunity to talk because the, the organization of American states it's controlled right now uh, by by the governments. And they are not. So we are also frustrated with institutions like that. Um, Let me ask, if I could, also then about Leopoldo Lopez, who is in jail. Um, do you consider him a political prisoner? Yes, of course. <laughs> Leopoldo, only uh, the students, uh, made a protest the 12th of February. And he said, we are going to support them. And during that protest, uh, and they, we have the videos, some policemen kill uh, a student, and other people, and there are not uh, images of that, kill uh, another person that was from uh, that was in the in the protest, but was not from the opposition. And they say the government say that Leopoldo is responsible of that because he called for the protest. O sea, not the the criminals are not the responsible. Rick. The criminal is Leopoldo because he said. I'm going to walk with the students, and that's it. And now he's in prison. That doesn't make you laugh. It can make you cry. Uh, we have a really difficult situation, Rick. I don't know how long. I started fighting for freedom 12 years ago, and I never thought I was going to long that long. So it's going to last that long. But I'm never going to stop until I see my, my country free um, with a democracy and, of course, with um, a, a new government that helps the poor, but also the, uh, respect the most democracy basics and respect human rights here in Venezuela. And now some footnotes to this conversation with Rodrigo Diamante. Diamante has attended various events sponsored by the Washington-based Cato Institute in Venezuela. And the Cato Institute has worked to put a spotlight on his case and the issue of political repression in Venezuela. The Cato Institute was founded by Charles Koch, one of the ultra-conservative Koch brothers. The Koch brothers are famous in the U.S. for funding the Tea Party movement. Various critics have also criticized them for their support and funding of the opposition movement in Venezuela. However, Diamante was clear with us that his group does not accept donations from groups outside of Venezuela. Also of note this week, in an unrelated case, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights agreed to take up the closure of one of Venezuela's television networks by the government when the commission meets later this month. Coming up, the inside scoop on corruption inside El Salvador's national police. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-CALLWWF. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week in San Salvador, Hector Silva unveiled his new book, Infiltrados, Infiltrators, a Chronicle of Corruption in the National Civil Police of El Salvador. Silva is a leading Salvadoran journalist and a fellow 
at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. He visited with us in our studios about his new book. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Who are the infiltrators? Well, it's uh, two groups, actually. Uh, One is the organized crime rings in El Salvador, uh, which are mainly um, groups of smugglers, people that smuggled um, goods, weapons uh, in the early, late 70s, early 80s in El Salvador. Then when the war, a civil war came, they uh, got engaged in smuggling weapons. Um, and some of them were, you know, low-time uh, operators for bigger rings that were were operating in Central America in the 80s in the midst of the whole, you know, um, civil wars, the uh, Iran-Contra operation, which, as you know, was a big smuggling uh, ring of weapons and goods for the Contras uh, in Honduras, fighting the Sandinista government. So these guys were operating mainly under the protection of uh, big military leaders that were engaged themselves with uh, illegal uh, drug smuggling operations related to the Colombian cartels back then. So these guys uh, became really powerful along the years. And one of the reasons that they became powerful was because they had very strong connection with authorities. and uh, Authorities who were willing to work under the radar in the illegal zone to get the arms they needed for the conflicts. Yes, or not necessarily under the radar, but, you know, uh, we're talking about... Uh, former military generals and colonels in Central America that were, you know, had the power, you know, the power of God over life and death, over, you know, airports and garrisons. So in the case of El Salvador, uh, the the civilian airport, which is now the military airport, they used that uh, for the contra Iran contras operation, and they used that to smuggle drugs from for for the Medellin cartel. Uh, back then. So, and they operated, you know, mostly, you know, all in, in daylight because they they had that kind of protection. So these guys, but uh, not the military, but the guys that worked for them, you know, developed themselves into more sophisticated organizations. In the particular case of El Salvador, thanks in, gra- in a great part to the connections they've had with younger military officers that then um, uh, when the war was over in El Salvador, became uh, the first leading officers of the new form, newly formed National Civilian Police, which was created after the peace accords in '92, and that's the beginning of the book. You know, telling the story on how, despite um, a process of creation of the new police that was supervised by the United Nations and other number of, uh, of go- foreign governments. Uh, and had at the core of it the intention of creating something that was entirely different to the old security corps related to the military in El Salvador, related to the violation of human rights during the war, and creating a new professional police body capable of, you know, investigating and prosecuting crimes. So the first part of my book is actually what I call the original sin, which is, you know, how these uh, corrupt officers uh, managed to step aside the, um, uh, the processes that were created by the United Nations uh, through the peace accord to clean the, 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 the police and to create an, a, a, a new clean institution. They, they managed to overcome that and actually got into the 
new police as what I call their the new elite. And these guys have been, you know, managing, ruling, leading the police for 20 years. That's where the book starts. And then I go uh, all the way through what's happening in, in these past 20 years. So you mentioned that's one group of infiltrators. Who's the second group? Well, the second group is actually uh, them, sorry, them, the officials. You know, once the organized crime rings and then the other ones are the actual police officers that had led the police for 20 years and had created a police. And I, 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 I want to be very emphat- emphatic on this. The police we have now is, of course, better than the, the old security corps we, we, we had during the war. You have to think about, you know, the old Latin American repressive security corps, you know, that we had during the 70s and the 80s, all the way from uh, Brazil, uh, from Chile, Brazil, Argentina, uh, to, through Central America, Honduras, El Salvador. We don't have that anymore because this police uh, is not, its main goal is not now to pro, uh, to to prosecute or to investigate or to repress the internal enemy, as, as you know, the opposition was known back in those days. But... This is the history of a police that be, that was born corrupt and became highly corrupt and wasn't able to face uh, a new reality of violence and common and organized crime that became commonplace in Central America after the civil wars. So, so this is the, the, the other group that I call the infiltrators, these corrupt officers. These corrupt officers have connections, as you said, to organized crime current organized crime groups that are part of uh, moving drugs through Central America or the street gangs that are so powerful in El Salvador or both? Mainly the current organized crime groups that are, as you said, you say, a part of the whole map of uh, drug trafficking in Central America. Keep in mind that um, the U.S. State Department uh, said in 2011 that 95% of the cocaine that went that was northbound that year uh, went through the Central American corridor, and some 80 to 85% of the cocaine that was actually consumed in the United States came from that corridor. So we do have a very well. Well, you know, this is all well known, but the people moving those amounts, those tons of cocaine down there are these groups, you know, independent local groups, territorial groups that operate specific routes. We have those in Honduras, we have those in Guatemala, we have those in El Salvador, you know. These are not the gangs, you know, and this is very important to, to this is very important for me to emphasize in this because it, it has been, you know, the narrative of the gangs has been at the core of the official narrative of violence in Central America. But again, the U.S. State Department, the United Nations have clearly stated that the youth gangs, you know, mainly the MS-13 and the Barrio 18 gang, are not main or important players in the drug trafficking. They don't have that kind of money. You know, they don't have the, the kind of money to infiltrate the state or the police. So we're talking mainly about more sophisticated, organized crime ranks, not the gangs. What haven't we covered that you think is important to know? I, I maybe want to say that this is, I don't see this as a book of the past. I think this is a very current a book. Um, actually, I had a lot of problems deciding when to stop or where to stop, you know, uh, writing, because as I look down, 
to my country, um, I am not optimistic about the situation. You mentioned the gangs. That's another problem that is not, as uh, again, uh, directly related to the book, but has to do with the insecurity problem. Uh, we had a truce. We've talked about that here in, in your program. I don't think we're... Uh, I think we're in a worse situation now that we are, although that we were before the truce, because um, it seems like the truce is broken. Uh, but then again, it has to do with the same things, insecurity. Drug trafficking is there. The State Department put out its uh, report on drugs uh, for 2013, and it says again for the third straight year uh, that El Salvador is one of the principal countries in the drug trafficking maps of the world. Despite that, our authorities keep saying that that's not true, that we don't have a major drug trafficking problem. Uh, so it's a culture of denial again. So it's very current. It's at the core of what's happening now. And, and that's the way I, I, I want to see the book, you know, playing out. Thank you so much. Hector Silva, the author of Infiltrados, Infiltrators, a Chronicle of Corruption in the National Civil Police of El Salvador, and a fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Hector Silva will officially debut his book in the U.S. at the Inter-American Dialogue this coming Monday, May 19th. And now Latin American Perspectives with Macarena Saiz of the Washington College of Law at American University. The 21st century is the era of marriage equality. In less than 15 years, more than 17 countries have granted marriage to same-sex couples. Latin America is coming late to this discussion. The only advantage of being late is that there is already enough information about what happened in other places regarding the same issue. The problem is to start the discussion late and still refuse to see what has worked or not in other countries. Let's take the case of Colombia. It is a fact that in Latin America, marriage is one of the most important institutions for the allocation of rights and obligations. A marriage certificate, for good and for bad, replaces many discussions about the real meaning of a relationship. Are they really in love? Do they really support each other or do they actually despise each other? Is he really the father of a wife's child? These are just a few of the many questions that become irrelevant when there is a marriage certificate. Marriage matters. The fact that same-sex couples do not have access to marriage in Colombia creates a substantive and tangible disadvantage for these couples. It is precisely the marriage certificate what constitutes a right in itself. So if it is clear that same-sex couples are at a disadvantage when compared to heterosexual couples, how come the Colombian Constitutional Court has not yet agreed on the need to grant marriage to same-sex couples? How come the Colombian Congress last year, after the Constitutional Court ordered it to come up with a solution for the lack of same-sex marriage, voted overwhelmingly against marriage equality? With all we know by now, the only possible explanation is bias against gays and lesbians. Bias was embedded in the parliamentary discussions when many opinions were based on unfounded suspicions already proved wrong by so many countries that have so far approved marriage equality. No one can claim today that same-sex marriage increases criminality indexes or school dropouts. There are no statistics showing more violence in families of same-sex couples than with heterosexual couples. And there is overwhelming evidence by now that children raised by same-sex parents 
fare as well as children of opposite sex couples. It is not the sex of the parents, but the lack of parents, lack of love and poverty that makes a difference in child rearing. The Constitutional Court decision deferring to the Colombian Congress the protection of same-sex couples has come to haunt the court. It will again have to decide if same-sex couples have the right to marriage. The court must grant marriage equality. Rights are rights. In a constitutional court, there can be no space for bias. And with all we know by now about same-sex couples and families, bias is the only justification to keep gay and lesbian couples as second-class families. The opinions of Macarena Saiz are her own and are not the official views of this program. If you are interested in more commentary, please check out the AULA blog. This week there's a commentary on the Colombian elections. You can find the blog at AULA blog, all one word, dot net. That's AULA blog dot net. And now a content disclaimer. During the fall of 2013, I conducted a speaking tour in Venezuela on free speech issues. That tour was partially funded by USAID. If you think that has affected our coverage of Venezuela, or if you would like to respond to our Latin American Perspectives commentary, please write us. You may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may contact us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions.